as I prayed about what God flew me 3,000 miles to share with you today, I just kept feeling the Spirit pull me towards Pentecost. Now, I know when you think of Pentecost, you think of speaking in tongues, people getting slain in the Spirit, and weird infomercials that come on at 2 a.m. And because of that, Pentecost has sparked many doctrinal debates and denominational divisions. But when you look closely at this narrative, what you'll see is this was not a moment of division. This was the greatest moment of unity in church history. Just a chapter before this, Jesus gave the disciples a promise. The promise was that power would fall on them in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost is the day that the Spirit of God fulfilled that promise and and gave birth to the church. But here's the crazy thing. The baby looked nothing like nobody expected. And we learn today then that the filling of the Spirit is the explosive power that changes the people, that changes the world. If we want to see God change Culver City, we have to be filled with the Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is the power that changed the people, that changed the world. Which leads me to my first point. The Spirit's power comes with patience. Verse 1 reads, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, the story begins with the apostles waiting in Jerusalem for a promise that they couldn't work for. Ooh, there's a word in there for somebody. Because that's the hardest thing in the world for us to do is wait. They were waiting on something that only God could give. Imagine what God could do with a group of people that were just willing to wait on him. Imagine what God could do with a group of people that were willing to wait for what they couldn't work for. I told my church last week, we don't know how to wait. We're going to get real today. Amen, somebody? We don't know how to wait. We want everything now. Let's keep it all the way real. We don't want food. We want fast food. When the fast food ain't fast enough, we go through the drive-thru to get the fast food. When the drive-thru ain't fast enough, we do one of these. I, hey, yo, hey, girl, get out, get out, get out. I go inside, which one, everyone get one, whoever get there first, we're going to order. I call me when you get there. You know what I'm talking about. I know I'm not the only one in here that gets tight when the, when the Wi-Fi is lagging. You be like, like double tapping, can't wait, boo-boo. Like, come on, right? But, but, but that's, that's our generation. We are an impatient generation. But family, this tells us something powerful about the way that the Holy Spirit works. Patience always precedes power. You missed that. The Holy Spirit fell with power on God's people when they were waiting together. Somebody say together. See, we live in a world that's been racialized individualized and politicized, which means we're discipled into division. The first thing you saw when you looked at me was a black man. And though I am a black man, there's all kinds of other logic that comes with that, which means, oh, either I'm black too, so we're connected, we imagine this connection, or I'm not black, so I don't imagine the connection. But that is a product of our society. We are discipled into division. That is by design. But despite all of that, we still long for the power of unity, don't we? We long for it. We, we love to talk about diversity in places like New York and L.A. We love to talk about diversity. Let's keep it real. Diversity is a, re, the, the diversity is a reality, but unity is a dream. That's why Martin Luther King said, I have a dream. It's not a reality. Diversity is a reality. We may want unity in diversity, but we don't know how to get it. 
which is why we desperately need the Holy Spirit. Historically speaking, let me give you a little history. Pentecost was one of the major feast days in the Jewish tradition. That's why there were so many cats there. You saw all them Jews from all, y'all you, you, saw that? All them folks from all over the world. We were like, dang, this looked like New York. This looked like, this is crazy. And Pentecost was a celebration of the beginning of a new harvest. So Jews from all over the world would come to the temple in Jerusalem to bring sacrifices to God as an act of worship. And because of that, Pentecost was a turn up. Oh, it was a lituation. Oh, it was Liddy. It looked like time, it looked like New Year's Eve in Times Square. It was lit. But while all of that partying is happening at the temple, the apostles are in the house waiting for a promise. The FOMO alone would have taken some of y'all out. <laughs> that FOMO's them, y'all know. FOMO be having you out there. Come on, let's talk about it. FOMO be having you out there with your bank account on life support. Y'all know it do. FOMO be having you out there, even though your body is screaming, help, sit this one out. FOMO will have you out there, even though God is like, you ain't spent time with me all week. Amen or ouch. And here's the thing. Sometimes we can FOMO ourselves right out of formation. You missed that. Because God forms you in the waiting room. But we feel stagnant in waiting. We feel like we're not making enough progress in waiting. We feel like people are passing us in waiting. But the best thing the apostles did wasn't work. It was wait. What are you waiting on God for right now? There's somebody under the sound of my voice waiting on God for something. Are you waiting for a spouse? Are you waiting for a child? Are you waiting for victory in the area of sin? Are you waiting for justice? Are you waiting for a sound mind? Whatever it is, don't mistake this. Don't mistake God's delay with God's denial. God's delay is never a denial. It's always for development. God's delay is always for development. In those 50 days that the apostles waited, they were waiting for something they couldn't work for. And they were learning that God's power will build his kingdom, not their efforts. Man, I wish I could, if, if I could get that message home to you today, you would be a lot happier and, you, and your faith would be a lot greater. They learned what God said through the prophet Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What felt like stagnation was really preparation. They were pregnant with a promise, but no due date. They were pregnant with something, but had no due date for when God was going to give birth to the baby. But finally, in verse 2, the promise arrives, and it looks nothing like they expect. Look at this. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wing, and it filled the entire house that they were sitting in. Family, this is how the Spirit always shows up. The Bible says the Spirit shows up like a mighty wind, not a strong breeze. Ooh, I like this. Mighty winds blow things around. They move stuff. They get things out the way. Some of us think that the spirit is here to just gently nudge us into our purpose, to gently blow us into our blessing. But when the spirit fills you, he moves stuff around in your life. Who am I preaching to? Have you ever been filled with the spirit? Have you ever had the spirit of God make you do something that you know you don't want to do and you ain't got no power in your flesh to do it? Make you go love somebody you don't want to love? Make you forgive somebody you can't stand? 
make you help somebody when you just want to keep it moving. That's the way the spirit works. He knocks down strongholds. He tears down lies. He rearranges relationships. And I don't know if you ever got caught out there in a storm because that's how the spirit's work is. It's a storm. But I know, I, well, maybe not because I know it rings like every leap year in L.A., right? Is that, is that really, is, was, I, was that accurate? It rings like every leap year around here, something like that. Um, but, but, but just because it never rains don't mean you ain't been caught in a storm. Depression is a storm. Racism is a storm. Cancer is a storm. Sexism is a storm. Suicidal thoughts are a storm. But what I need you to see today as I move is if you want to be used by God, then the spirit doesn't just use the storm. He becomes the storm. See, the first thing that the spirit does before he gives gifts, before he performs miracles, before he talks about reconciliation or does the work of reconciliation is he doesn't do things through you. He does something in you. And once he's moved in you, he can move through you. That leads me to my second point. The spirit's power creates understanding. The spirit's power creates understanding. After the Holy Spirit shakes the foundations of everything in the life of the apostles, he shows up with signs. Somebody say signs. The Bible says divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Now, see, I am not that brave. If I would have saw some tongues of fire, I'd have been out the house. I wasn't getting filled that day. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Theologians are in unanimous agreement that these tongues of fires were other, other known languages at the time. Which means on Pentecost, we see the Spirit of God giving birth to the church, not by giving them the ability to persuade people, but by giving them the ability to speak other people's languages oh my 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 look what verses five and six say now there were dwelling in jerusalem jews devout men from every nation under heaven and at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered the text says that when the crowds of jews from all over the world heard the sound of the spirit's work they came together but they came together confused they came together not understanding what was going on. But see, the Spirit's work always brings unity out of diversity. Even though they all didn't belong to each other, they came together because they heard the sound of the Spirit's work. And this wasn't the kind of pseudo-reconciliation that we see in our churches today. Amen or ouch. That kind of reconciliation where there's proximity but not intimacy. You know what I'm talking about. These racial and ethnic others were gathered together because they were hearing the gospel in their own native languages. Of all the ways that God could have given birth to the Christian church, this is the way he chose. Have you ever thought about that? Of all the ways that God could have gave birth to the church, he gave birth to the church not by giving the apostles the ability to read minds, which would have been kind of crazy. I would have liked that power. I would like to believe, you know, you'd have been, all right, anyway, we got to move. Um, he gave birth to the church not by giving, the ability to do, by giving them the ability to do a bunch of miracles to persuade people. He gave birth to the church not by giving believers, like unbelievers, the ability to understand the language of believers, 
But instead, the Holy Spirit gives birth to the church by giving believers, believers, the church, the apostles, the people who are in, the people who are at the center of the narrative, the people who already belong to God, by giving them the ability to speak the language of the people that didn't. Do you understand what I just said? See, one of the first things in life we learn is language. It's how we communicate. It's how we work together. It's how we find belonging. In fact, you could say it this way. To speak a language is to speak a people. And Pentecost shows us that God speaks people fluently. And this all has powerful missional implications for the church of Jesus Christ. This has powerful missional implications for collective church in Culver City. The Spirit gave those at the center the ability to speak the language of those at the margins. Did you hear that? He gave those who belonged the ability to speak the language of those who were far off, which means God sends the church into the world. He doesn't send the world to the church. There's a big difference between being a church person and a kingdom person. Do you understand that? Church people are focused on how to get the world into the church, right? What do we have to do to get the world into the church? What do we have to do to get unbelievers? What do I have to do to get my neighbor into the church? But kingdom people are focused on how to get the church into the world because that's the work. It's not about them coming to us. It's about us going to them. The spirit sends us out, not brings them here. See, this is a big theological word for all of this called contextualization. Somebody say contextualization. Contextualization is giving people the gospel in a form, manner, and language that they can understand and feel, even if they don't agree. See, many of us think we're sharing the gospel with our unbelieving friends and family, but they have no idea what we're saying. We're just weird Christians. Today, they're like, y'all are weirdos. Because we didn't contextualize. We just spoke Christianese to them. We gave them the gospel in jargon that they don't understand in a language they don't speak. And skilled contextualizers of the gospel understand this. The native must always drive the narrative. The native must always drive the narrative. The person that God has sent me to share his, his gospel with must always, must always drive the way that I share it. Because language is more than what we say. Language is what we do. Now, let's get real, family. The church has done a terrible job of sharing Jesus in the language that our culture speaks. We preach a message of grace, but our body language has been that of judgment. We preach being justified, but never preach justice. But you can't spell justification without justice. What do you think justification is? Justification is the wrath of God being satisfied against your sins, which means God got justice on the cross and Jesus got judged. That's why we're accepted. So God is a God of justice, but we preach justification, but never justice. If your gospel is only vertical, but never horizontal, if it only talks about living in right relationship with God, but never about living in right relationship with neighbor, then I came all the way from New York to tell you this because I love you. You don't have a cross, boo-boo, you got a stick. That's what you got. And a stick is powerless to save. Because a cross is both vertical and horizontal. And because our language is off, we've created churches that function as holy huddles. 
Will we gather together to keep ourselves warm from the unbelieving world out there? Oh my God, look at the, look at the law. Oh my gosh, look who's in, look who's in office. Oh my gosh, look, look, look at what's changing. Look at what they're legalizing. We, we just gather to keep ourselves warm from the unbelieving world. Instead, we should be saying, oh my gosh, look at who we get to reach. Oh my gosh, we get an opportunity to go out there and share. They really don't know who Jesus is. Wow, we got a blank slate. That, that's why I love the way God is moving in our church in Harlem because we're seeing people who would never come to church meet Jesus because they have a blank slate. Man, it's the, the hardest thing in the world, the hardest person in the world to reach is Christians. I don't get no emails from my unchurched people. I get all my emails from Christians. Well, Pastor K, that, that wasn't really the right translation. You, gotta, you wasn't really supposed to say it like that. And because of this, we have, we have we, because, because we become a holy huddle, we gather together to answer questions that nobody in the community is asking. Nobody's asking those questions. We're asking those questions. They're not asking those questions. And that's how gentrification happens. I know gentrification is like a hot button term out here. Trust me, it's a fire button term in New York. In Harlem, you, you say the word gentrification, and that's like, that's like Mufasa. Ooh, like you just you can't even say that word. But gentrification is basically, it's, it's really a simple concept. Gentrification is when money moves to the hood. That's what gentrification is. It's when money moves to the hood. It's when people who have social and economic power move to a place that has no social and economic power. It's when people who have some privilege move to a place where people have been forgotten by design, which we'll talk about a little later. Gentrification is the spatial expression of economic inequality. And, and here's what I need you to understand. Gentrification is the hot button issue. It is the hot, the number one justice issue in our, in our urban centers today. Because if we don't get right that everybody has a right to live, that everybody deserves not a house but a home, that this community must be for everybody's flourishing, then we're going to get everything else wrong after that. But the church has become implicit in gentrification because we haven't learned to let the native drive the narrative. So we preach God as just and a justifier of those who believe, but live comfortably within an unjust system at the same time. Just as people move to America and learn English, people of different racial and social groups who move into neighborhoods where people are being displaced must learn the language of the people. That's what Pentecost teaches us, amen? Where my help go? Y'all got quiet. But Pentecost teaches us another way. Pentecost teaches us another way of being. See, the Spirit's activity in Acts 2 causes us to ask this question. What language do my neighbors that need Jesus speak? Ooh, if you're taking notes, write that down. Do they speak workaholic or alcoholic? Do they speak weed or greed? Do they speak depression or anxiety? Do they speak churched? Or unchurched? Do they speak Cardi or Nikki? <laughs> what do they speak? Because whatever language they speak, the Spirit speaks. 
Whatever language they speak, the spirit speaks. He's omnilingual. I know I just made that up. Stop judging me. (laughs) Stop judging me. He's fluent. This Holy Spirit, Pentecost shows us the Holy Spirit is fluent in rich and poor. He's fluent in privileged and oppressed. He's fluent in male and female. He speaks single parent and married with children. He speaks churched and unchurched. And as my church in Harlem grows, I realize that our neighbors aren't asking us to water down the gospel. They're asking us to translate it. See, the problem in the church is we have too many gospel interpreters, but not enough gospel translators. That's what the world needs, more gospel translators. Family, the best missionaries understand that though the gospel content doesn't change, the gospel context always does. And whether you know it or not, we're all missionaries under the sound of my voice. Missionaries don't just go across the waters. That's what we think, right? Missionaries across the waters. Sometimes they go across the street. Amen or ouch. Sometimes they go to another country. Sometimes they go to a community board meeting. But we all have a mission field. We all have a sphere of influence where we can make an impact. That's why the Apostle Paul says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Paul was like, y'all was out there. <laughs> I was like, have the law, you know. You know, you got, yo, when you up in, in Gentiles, you got to eat bacon, you know, you get, you get. Pig feet or leg, pork chops, that's good. That's that good, good. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Paul is the greatest missionary who ever lived. We'll be lucky if we can tie the the tongs of Paul's heavenly sandals. And yet he shows us what a spirit-filled life looks like. It's not just that you can manifest spiritual gifts. It's not just that you can pray or preach. It's that your life manifests spiritual fruit. Jesus never spoke in a tongue, but he was so spirit-filled that if you just touched the bubble of his Air Max, (laughs) you could be made whole. Did you hear what I just said? Jesus was so spirit-filled that if you touched the jump man on his Jordans, Your whole life could be changed. Can you confidently say that you've become all things to all people just so that one of them might know Jesus? Amen. Have you made room for all of God's children to flourish? See, speaking in a room like this, there's definitely people in here with a certain kind of power, a certain kind of influence, a certain kind of privilege, and that's not your fault. Listen, I tell my white folks, listen, don't feel bad about white privilege. It's here. What you going to do about it? You feeling bad won't change the impact that you have in society. Instead, I say, who's flourishing because you have power? Okay, you have privilege, but I can't do nothing with white guilt. I can't do nothing with guilt, but I can do something with grace. God can use that. So who's flourishing because you have power? We flourish because Jesus had power. We would have no hope if Jesus ain't have power. 
Jesus could have been the ultimate gentrifier. Jesus came from heaven and moved to earth. Whenever God moves into your neighborhood, I'm just going to throw this out there just in case you ain't know, the property value goes up. (laughs) And yet Jesus used his power to create flourishing. He became all things to all people so that by any possible way, he might save some. The problem in the church is we spend too much time focusing on getting the language right, and we don't spend enough time learning what language our neighbors speak. But being filled with the Spirit means looking for the hurts of the people and listening to the hurts of your community and then contextualizing and translating the gospel to speak to their pain. And that leads me to my third point, and I'm out your way so we can eat. I know y'all ready to go to, go to brunch. Go to brunch. I, know, I know y'all got brunch plans right now. Y'all like, all right, here, chocolate preacher, so... We usually go 40 minutes, so let's make sure. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm hungry too. Point three, the Spirit's power creates unity. The Spirit's power creates unity. The next couple of verses read, utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthian and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia's Figria, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. One of the things that we often miss about Pentecost is the incredible diversity that was present in this, in this moment in history. There were people here from Africa, Asia, Mediterranean, and Europe all at once. Pentecost was the largest multi-ethnic gathering in church history. It means in Pentecost, Galileans spoke German. In Pentecost, Hebrews spoke Haitian. Think about that for a second. The first church in history wasn't just multilingual, it was multi-ethnic. That should tell us something about God's heart then for the church, shouldn't it? If this is what the blueprint looks like, why does the church not look like this today? The spirit strategically starts the church during one of the most diverse times in Israel. So if the church began integrated at Pentecost, why has it existed segregated for the last 1,700 years? Today, it's perfectly natural to imagine churches that are all white and all black and all Hispanic and all Asian. In fact, it's weird to walk into a church that's not like that. That's unnatural to see a church. That's how you know that's God's work, amen? Amen. Because it's unnatural. It ain't what the world is used to. It's unnatural to walk into a church like that. But it's natural to walk into a church where everybody looks like me. Everybody votes like me. Everybody shops like me. Everybody listens to what I listen to. Watch the shows that I watch. That's natural. That's perfectly natural. You don't need the spirit to do that. That's why we're shocked. Because the one person we never expect to to show up at church is Jesus. Because you don't need Jesus to do that. You can fill a room like this just with gifted people. You can have a gifted communicator and gifted worship leaders and a great band. You don't need Jesus to do that. But, but, but you need Jesus to look like this. 
You, you need Jesus to get enemies, natural enemies at the same table. Jesus, Jesus, his 12 disciples were so different that they literally could not eat a meal together if Jesus wasn't at the table with them. That's what the church looks like. Jesus had a zealot who was like, I don't know, the wokeity woke folks. I don't know if we got any wokeity woke people. I got wokeity woke people in Harlem. I mean, they wokeity woke, woke, woke. So, so, so we had, Jesus had wokeity woke cats ready to overthrow Roman imperialism and colonialism. And at the same time, he had a tax collector who worked for the government. He had mama's boys. He had, he had all of these people at the same table. And they could only eat a meal together because Jesus was with them. Oh, man, I wish I had some help right there. How did a church planted with the seed of diversity grow into a tree of homogeneity? How did that happen? If Pentecost is your foundation, where would you get the ability to even imagine that the church should look any different? In fact, the wrestle on the pages of the New Testament was not should the church be ethnically diverse, but how does the church be ethnically diverse? Do, 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 do Gentiles need to not only eat kosher? That's what they were asking. Um, should, every, should, should every Gentile male be circumcised? I'm glad they said no to that. <laughs> Can non-Jews still eat meat sacrificed to idols? Those are the questions they're asking. In other words, the early church wasn't wrestling with the, with the question of diversity. They were, they were wrestling with the messiness of diversity. How do you bring people together that are so ethnically and culturally different and still have some kind of unity? That's what they were wrestling with. How do you get vegans and people who eat meat together and eat a meal? That's the questions they were asking. But if your view of the church looks nothing like the major event that started it, then you should question and critique your view of the church. Because this is what the church is supposed to look like. Because God has always been after the work of building unity through diversity. That's why he made us all so beautiful and yet so different. I'm glad that he wrapped me in chocolate flesh. I'm glad I'm caramel to the core. I'm glad he took time to make all of this. This, this was a masterpiece. I don't care what the world say about my skin color. This was a masterpiece. And I'm glad he took his time and formed me in the ground with his hands. And I'm glad he put his hand in the ground when he made me. So I, I, I don't care what society says I look like. I know I got to lose a little weight. I know I got to work on a couple things. But I don't care what the world says I look like because he said I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm glad he made you different than he made me because there's beauty and difference. God made us all different and dignified. The problem in America is when you're different, you're not dignified. But God made us different and dignified at the same time. See, the church was never meant to be uniform. We were meant to be united. When something has uniform when something is uniform, everything looks the same. But when something has unity, everything is doing something different for the same goal. In fact, this is a pet peeve of mine because I think we have a bad job of doing this in church. In, in the church, we have a bad problem of using terms but never defining them. Right? Has that happened to y'all? Like, 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 like righteousness or like be holy, like, 
like, or, or, or sin. Like, we, we just use those terms. We don't define them. Unity is one of those terms that we use but don't define. So here's my definition of unity. Unity is different people doing different things to accomplish the same goal. Different people doing different things to accomplish the same goal. The Spirit gave the apostles the ability to do what they had no desire to do. They weren't worried about speaking other people's languages. They could care less about speaking other people's languages. They were worried about God restoring Israel. They was like, yo, Lord, when you about to roll up on Caesar and them, because we got some goons ready to ride out whenever you're ready to ride out, Lord. Peter, you know, Peter was a goon. He had a sword ready, sharp, anybody to cut somebody's ear off. When you restoring Israel, Lord, that's what we want to know. They had no desire to love people that weren't like them. They had no desire to belong to people that weren't theirs by ethnicity. They wanted the spirit to come bearing triumph. They never thought he would come bearing tongues. They didn't imagine that God's desire for the church was to be a diverse and dignified family that speaks the love of God in the language of its neighbors. They didn't imagine that the spirit was going to form a community like the world has never seen, where the categories of belonging expand beyond race, class, and gender. They never imagined that this is what God was up to. And look at how this passage ends. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? That's when you know God is working in the life of his people. When unbelievers come to you, like, what does this mean? This is crazy. Wait, wait, what? Like, you love people like me? Wait, wait, you, you, you made room for somebody like me? What does this mean? However, some of them made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. They're a little tipsy. Verse 13 is ironic because the text says that some people thought the disciples were drunk when they started speaking in tongues. Now listen, I've seen people speak some colorful tongues when they've had a little bit too much to drink. But I've never seen them do this. The truth is the disciples weren't drunk with wine, but they were drunk. They were drunk with a wine that we all need. The disciples weren't drunk with the wine that comes from the crushing of grapes, but they were drunk with the wine that came from the crushing of Jesus. Jesus would often compare his ministry to new wine. His first miracle was turning water into... In Luke 5, 37 through 38, he says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine would burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. God can't pour new wine into the old you. Did you hear what I just said? New wine needs to be poured into a new vessel. Jesus is saying he hasn't come to keep tradition. He hasn't come to keep things the way they were. He hasn't come to keep you comfortable with what you've always known. He hasn't come to keep the world's racial and relational systems the way they've always been. He's come to bring new wine. And Pentecost is proof that new wine has come. A new kind of community is born. A new move of God is underway. And the Holy Spirit is at the center of it, pouring new wine and new love and new languages on his people. 
And this new wine is poured out on those who are totally unaware of how much they need it. You don't even know how much you need the new wine that the Spirit came to bring. Every single one of us thirsts for the new wine that the Spirit has, but rejoice because now we have access to this new wine without measure. So go out, family, into this community, not as those drinking the old wine of the way things have always been, drinking the old wine of how your parents raised you to be, Drinking the old wine of the sort of categories of belonging that you've been discipled into living under, but rather drink the new wine that the Spirit pours out on the church in Pentecost where people who don't look the same, speak the same, vote the same, talk the same, still love one another under the same Jesus. Will you bow with me in prayer?